I want you to picture church in your head. Who do you picture attending that space? What's the look on their faces? There's really no telling what you came up with, but in a weekly gathering of 40,000 people with more in virtual attendance, there are people who imagine a place where they can sing, dance, and pray together. No matter where you come from and what you've done, you'll be met by a smiling preacher, and you'll be able to take your future into your own hands with the following words. Say it like you mean it. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today I will be taught the Word of God. I boldly confess my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, God bless you. Philip Luke Sinatare is the author of Salvation with a Smile, Joel Osteen, Lakewood Church, and American Christianity. He gives us a tour of America's largest megachurch. It's a conversation recorded as part of Calvin College's 2016 seminar, Bodies of Christ, Visualizing Jesus Then and Now, sponsored by the Lilly Endowment. And it's coming up right now. From SowingTheSeed.org, this is Broadcast Seeding, the podcast with future food for thought on religion, culture, and teaching. I'm Richard Newton. We're glad you've joined us. We are joined today with Dr. Philip Luke Sinatare, who's written Salvation with a Smile, Joel Osteen, Lakewood Church, and American Christianity. So, Phil, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So for people who have not been to Lakewood Church or encountered Lakewood Church on television or through the internet, um, tell us a bit about who goes to Lakewood Church. What's a Lakewood Church attendee like? A Lakewood Church attendee is somebody who is deeply interested in uh, God, somebody who is interested in projecting what they feel is God's joy. Uh, and that is in part through a smile because there are a lot of smiling people at the Smiling Preachers Church. Uh, these folks are come from every strata of society. There are working class folks, there are even homeless people, uh, there are uh, very wealthy people. So, so you, you have a, a, a strata in American society. There are also people of every imaginable background, race and ethnicity, uh, and this is Lakewood is known as the largest megachurch in the United States. It is perhaps also the most ethnically and racially diverse congregations. Uh, the congregation has not released any statistical data on that particular uh, facet of its congregational life, but I think anybody who visits there, anybody who has been in the space that is Lakewood Church would not disagree with that. Uh, suggestion that it that it's it's just extraordinarily uh, diverse in terms of the the congregation itself. Now leadership, uh, that's a whole other issue. That's a whole other question. But certainly, uh, that diversity is is one of the clearest uh, aspects of of the church itself. And this congregation, I mean, it is it is not just one congregation in America. In some ways, it is a it is to talk about church in America. I mean, I, I was telling someone the other day, I was in a youth group where we went on mission trips internationally, and I think I was in Nicaragua, 
and the people that we were talking to knew that my group was from Houston and they said you know Lakewood are you from Lakewood and that was what you know that connection to Lakewood is what they wanted it's kind of what they expected like even if we weren't Lakewood we better bring some Lakewood with us and for me, I, I will never be able to sort of take away Lakewood from the city of Houston because it is in the heart of the city now, um, and it, but it hasn't always been. You know, now it is in comp what was Compact Center, what others know as the Summit. It's where the Houston Rockets played and won their championships. Now that is the mega church of America, um, but it hasn't always been that way. So what's the Lakewood story? Yeah, I think that's a very, very good point, Richard, and... I, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Lakewood as a church or a congregation in Houston. Uh, Lakewood is known throughout the United States and, as you suggested, elsewhere in, in the world. And, and that's a really important part of the story because I don't think you can understand Lakewood Church and Joel Osteen in a national or international frame without making sense of its local uh, genesis. And, and you're right, it was, it was not always in an upscale part of Houston known as Greenway Plaza with multi-million dollar corporations, with high-end retail, with Starbucks coffee. Uh, it has not always been there. It, it has not always expressed itself in uh, clearly bourgeois ways. Uh, it, it started elsewhere in Houston on the northeast side in really a working class neighborhood that over time that is to say, in the 60s and 70s and, and since, it became uh, multi-racial, multi-ethnic. And what's interesting about Lakewood's story is John Osteen, Joel's father, was born in poverty, experienced uh, impoverished, economically destitute situations growing up. And he clearly exhibited in his ministry what we might call a preferential option for the poor, uh, both rhetorically and um, uh, in, a, in a kind of embodied sense. And what's fascinating is that John Osteen, for, all, for, for, for his entire life as Lakewood's minister, probably more so in the 70s and 80s, insisted on keeping the, the church in Northeast Houston. He tells stories in recorded sermons that I listened to in research of his uh, wealthy friends uh, from elsewhere in the city. I would imagine some of these folks lived in River Oaks and Memorial and, and, and very wealthy areas who, who said, you know, John, you need, to, you need to move your church out of that part of, that part of town. Uh, we have some land we can help you out. And, and, and John, as he narrated those stories, uh, refused to do that um, and kind of articulated that as a divine calling that he was meant to kind of keep the church here but I think um, I think that's an important part of the story that John chose to keep the church uh, in the geographical area of Houston that it was now I think there were also logistical issues the church is growing there's parking issues and all that kind of stuff so as a matter of logistics the church I think was looking elsewhere uh, but uh, John chose to keep the church in that part of, of town but I think it's also telling that even though John chose to keep Lakewood in, in, a, in a working class, multiracial neighborhood, uh, he had the means to move his family elsewhere. And one of the interesting discoveries in my research was that in the early 1970s, 
John and his family purchased a home in northeast Houston uh, known as Kingwood. It's a, it's a wealthy suburb. It was started by uh, a, a, the same individual, um, a, a, big, a big developer in Houston, the Friendswood Corporation. Um, and, and so it was a sort of master plan community. So the point I'm making is that even though John's church or Lakewood church resided in a uh, working class part of town, John's preferential option for the poor only went so far. He, he chose to, to move his family elsewhere. And, and, uh, and so I think that's an interesting kind of juxtaposition to, to mention in its broader story, this, this origin story that you asked about. Yeah, and one of the models for mega churches uh, as they emerge um, in two ways, I think, in, in the United States. One is being the large mainline churches that continue to grow and grow and grow and figure out how to expand their sphere of influence, but then also the upstart church. Uh, both of these, I think, have in mind being where the people are. Uh, so you see big downtown churches trying to add campuses and go out west and even east and south, uh, but get out of downtown. You can't just stay in downtown. You get in the new master plan communities, new churches popping up, these church starts that you know, maybe start off in a school and then they, they build their new building and they just keep growing and growing and growing. Lakewood's on the far north side of Houston and even though the Osteens moved to Kingwood and lived there, people are going across town to be at this place. I mean, I, I think I knew Lakewood probably first through bumper stickers that you would drive down on the freeway and you'd see um, beat up cars. I mean, what I would say is a sort of a, mar a marker of um, not poverty necessarily, but certainly class distinction. These weren't Benzes. These were, you know, uh, Ford probes, you know, and um, they would have their uh, bumper stickers with Lakewood Church, Oasis of Love, and they'd be going across town to be there, to be at the place, right, at the Oasis of Love. What was going on there that was so compelling? What was it that John Osteen was doing that made Houston come to him? Yeah, I, I really like how you, you phrase that, uh, uh, Houston coming to, to Lakewood and what was what was the draw? Uh, I would say it's 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 many things. In in one sense, we can think about this in Lakewood Church as a diverse congregation. So how how did that happen? How did that come to be that that people uh, of all backgrounds traveled across the city to to attend Lakewood? And I think it's part of part of the connection point there is. Lakewood's connection to Pentecostalism, or as it was called after World War II, Neo-Pentecostalism. And there's a moment in the early Pentecostal movement in the early 20th century, uh, a, a, in essence we can describe it as a kind of multiracial moment, where black, white, and brown Pentecostals are worshiping together in Los Angeles in this uh, very uh, close quarters it is uh, described by the Los Angeles Times as a tumble-down shack, so it's a, there's a, a class marker there about the early Pentecostals. But it's this space, this spiritual space, or a space of spiritual longing uh, that, is, uh, that includes the intermingling of black, white, and brown bodies. Now, that, uh, that, that moment did not continue in Pentecostalism. But I think there is something within that particular movement that helps to explain why a whole diverse group of people ended up at Lakewood. 
I think John Osteen um, was aware of that history. Ironically, in the 1960s, when Houston had many of its civil rights struggles and changes, uh, in, in effect, when Houston became integrated, John Osteen was out of the city. He was traveling as, a, as an evangelist. He was um, spending a lot of his time uh, building the John Osteen Evangelistic Association. Association. So he was not uh, present in Houston as much. So in effect, he did not necessarily have to take a public stand as a white privileged minister on uh, integration or civil rights, etc. Yet when he returned to Houston full time to pastor, uh, continue pastoring Lakewood Church in the late 60s and early 70s, he was a, he was a beneficiary of that integration, which I think is an important part of the story that, that doesn't always get told. So I think there's a part of the history of Pentecostalism that explains that multiracial character. I think that John Osteen's experience of poverty growing up uh, gave him a certain sense of compassion for human beings. And, and not only did he say that, but people I interviewed who knew him personally, who had 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 backgrounds of impoverishment, of drug abuse, uh, prison, all sorts of, of uh, uh, difficulties. To a person, they said, when we went to Lakewood, we did experience the oasis of love. The church, the congregation embraced us, these, these people said, and it didn't matter what my background was, they, they, they would tell me. Uh, I felt like I could be a human being. I was, I was, I was seen as, as a human being. And also somebody who could be rebuilt. So, so the, the third piece, in other words, why the third reason why people flocked to Lakewood had to do with this overriding message of a second chance. Uh, people could be in a place where they could have the possibility of remaking themselves. In, in the book, I use the psychologist uh, Dan McAdams concept of a redemptive self and so at Lakewood in essence people could find their redemptive self or their redemptive selves uh, collectively and so I think that was that was a really big draw uh, as well. And Houston like probably a lot of southern cities has a lot of redemption to do like they need a lot of redemption in um, thinking through this larger thing of being American right if you if you have a city in the south um, that was on the losing side of the Civil War, on the losing side of history. You've got to have that second chance if you want to make it. You know, Atlanta has theirs. Um, Houston needs its uh, own second chance. And you, you could, you know, if you're a sports fan, you could say the Rockets definitely need a second chance, you know. Uh, but industry-wise, I mean, they, they need to find a way to take their place among the sort of kingdoms of American powerful cities. It seems like Lakewood really taps into that story as well. I mean, they move into the compact center, right? Uh, I, I'm not trying to make too much of the sort of uh, that champion notion, but they do have that theme of discover the champion in you uh, at one point, and clearly they move into the house of the uh, you know, back-to-back Houston Rocket Championship. Um, but people are going and they're discovering themselves that they can be winners, that they can make it uh, and succeed and be prosperous and that of course brings us to this notion of the prosperity gospel that Lakewood gets tagged with a lot what is the prosperity count the prosperity council how does 
excuse me, prosperity gospel? How does it relate to Pentecostalism? Um, what's the family resemblance in, in all of that? Yeah, that, that's a good, uh, very good question. Um, <clears throat> the prosperity gospel can be defined as the uh, kind of spiritualization of material acquisition. That's, that's the kind of broadest uh, definition or the spiritualizing of material accumulation. And the prosperity gospel itself, as we know it in uh, the 21st century, is, is in some ways, uh, it should be prosperity gospels. There are various aspects of it. Uh, the scholar uh, Kate Bowler uh, of Duke uh, Divinity School has written the definitive uh, account of the prosperity gospel's history in the United States, a book titled uh, Blessed, and she traces the history of the prosperity gospel to the 19th century and uh, kind of follows it uh, throughout the 20, 20th and 21st century to the present. And part of this notion of the prosperity gospel is connected to this idea of um, material prosperity, economic advancement in the industrial age. Uh, we think of Andrew Carnegie's Gospel of Wealth. We think of Russell Conwell's uh, notion of a prosperity gospel, these figures of the industrial era in the late 19th century who wanted to uh, baptize their wealth in essence, uh, but also the, this idea of, of kind of redistributing it. But in essence, uh, it's okay to be rich. Uh, God is, is happy that I'm rich. Uh, if I can, if I can put it that way. But then there's also the development of new thought, the new thought movement, which I like to describe as as the positive thinking movement of the 19th century, uh, coupled with move religious movements that emphasize the body and uh, kind of uh, cosmetic improvement, uh, health, uh, diet, nutrition, and so there was this kind of convergence of notions of prosperity, ideas of uh, thinking oneself to be a, into being a better person, uh, but also connected to the bodily form of improvement through health and nutrition. And so these, these streams of thinking and culture kind of uh, cohered and coalesced and intersected with Pentecostalism. And so you have this notion of a second chance which is deeply embedded in the Christian story, right? This idea of redemption through, through Christ. But what does that redemption look like? What does it look like in bodily form? What does it look like as a theological concept? What does it look like if I'm sick? Uh, and so these factors uh, transform the, uh, the American landscape in, 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 in many ways because part of what we might generalize as American identity is this idea of uh, self-improvement, remaking yourself. And I think that resonates in some ways on a cultural level. Uh, I think it resonates on the, uh, in, in the aspect of, of religious movements. Um, I think there are problems, all sorts of problems and, and broader issues to, to flesh out with that. But I think that helps to explain why Pentecostalism had the uh, importance that it did. And not just in a positive sense, as in Pentecostalism grew, but also it had its many critics, which also speaks, I think, in some ways to its popularity. <coughs> so many of the things that Lakewood Church gets critiqued on 
um, in mainstream media in other branches of Christianity really have precedence in earlier Christian and social forms in America. So I'm thinking we could go back to the Civil War, right? I mean, I brought up the South earlier. And after the Civil War, we have a country that's trying to put itself back together again. You also have the Industrial Revolution that's happening, so there's new economic and social opportunities um, that these sort of robber barons like the Carnegie's and others of the world are making happen, right? They're building railroads, they're investing in cities and colleges and libraries uh, and industry and people are pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, so it seems. And Lakewood really does tap into all of those different pieces. And it seems like as much as there's a family resemblance uh, or a family connection and thought and probably money as well, you also get the importance of family and the community that's constructed at Lakewood. Um, not only those who come to the Oasis of Love to discover the champion in themselves, right, but also the Osteen family. So who is this family? We know they started from um, nothing, if you will, but who is John Osteen that he's able to build an association around himself? Who's his son, Joel? Who are the people they're married to? Um, yeah, yeah and I, uh, the, the Osteen family, I think, is, is deeply connected to the broader story of the prosperity gospel in the post-World War II period. And I think it's important to make that, that distinction Earlier I talked about the late 19th, early 20th century kind of origins or genesis of the prosperity gospel. But when we talk about Lakewood's connection to the prosperity gospel, we're talking about this neo-charismatic or neo-Pentecostal movement that, that developed after World War II and how that is different in some ways than the early earlier Pentecostal movement is that it is much more denominationally diverse. In other words, there are Southern Baptists, there are Methodists, there are Nazarenes, there are Catholics, uh, all sorts of uh, pre uh, Presbyterians, uh, all sorts of denominations who <clears throat> experience uh, Pentecostalism and become connected to the Neo-Pentecostal movement. And so that's John's entry point into uh, the movement as, as this post-World War II period. Uh, which also coincides with the rise of early televangelism and new, new communications technologies, new distribution networks of print material and so forth that, that really helped to define the prosperity gospel and its, its dissemination in, in many ways. And so the Osteen family uh, themselves uh, comes from North Texas and John's uh, family was involved in farming and they got hit, got hit, got hit pretty, hit pretty oppression, but they, unlike some other uh, evangelicals from the upper south or the deep south, they didn't migrate to California and elsewhere, as other scholars have, have written very persuasively uh, about, they, they stayed in, 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 in Texas. And John was born in uh, 1921, so he was uh, uh, in his late teens as the, the, the Great Depression kind of hit, and uh, he was able to uh, find a way to go to school, get an undergraduate education, um, and, and eventually go to, to seminary. Uh, but something that I was not able to puzzle out in my research, uh, I didn't find any documentary evidence to answer any of my questions on this, but uh, John ended up at John Brown University in Siloam Springs, Arkansas, on the far northwest side. And as uh, Darren Dochuk and other scholars have, have written about in terms of 
uh, Sunbelt religion and the rise uh, intersection of conservatism and, and Christianity, evangelicalism. Um, John Brown University was a sort of breeding ground, if you will, for uh, political conservatism. And so John was connected in that, in that regard to this early uh, movement. And then for reasons, again, I was not able to puzzle out in my research, instead of attending uh, Southwestern Baptist Seminary in Fort Worth, where John uh, grew up, uh, he attended Northern Baptist Theological Seminary. And there he got a master's in religious education, wrote a master's thesis in 1944 on basically Christian education in a congregational setting. And from that point, he's connected in Southern Baptist circles. And he makes the circuit as an itinerant minister. And some of the documentation that I found described him as a preacher of presence. He had a formidable presence in the pulpit, on the stage, and eventually settled in uh, Texas, uh, preaching uh, in, in churches in North Texas and then moved to Houston in, in, in 1950. Uh, and in terms of the Osteen family, <clears throat> John uh, uh, was married in, as best I can tell, sometime in the 19, late 1940s, had a son, uh, with his, his first wife named Justin, who eventually works at Lakewood Church. Uh, but in 1955, uh, about five years after becoming minister at a place called Central Baptist Church in Baytown, Texas, uh, John Osteen and his first wife divorce. Again, these are, these are uh, the full story I was, I was unable to puzzle out in my, in my research. Uh, in any case, he, he leaves Central Baptist Church. And in the intervening years, several things uh, happen. He gets remarried to a nurse named Dodie Pilgrim, whom he meets in Baytown uh, on his visits to the hospital, and then eventually has five children with, with uh, Dodie Osteen. But in the midst of the late 1950s, he uh, experiences what I, in the book, call an existential crisis of faith. Uh, he's in his late 30s. His, his daughter named Lisa is born with what the parents and the doctors think is cerebral palsy. And John's Southern Baptist background had no room for the possibility of what he and Dodie called divine healing. In other words, as parents, they wanted desperately for their daughter to improve health-wise. And the only place John knew to turn was to these Pentecostals that he had heard about and these Pentecostals that he had been warned about. And so in, in, in desperation, he and his wife become Pentecostal because they, they seek out individuals and pastors and church leaders who uh, kind of confirm for them that, yes, healing is possible. It is possible that, that, that their daughter can, can improve. And so they spend time in prayer. They start exhibiting um, uh, expressions of Pentecostalism, such as speaking in tongues, glossolalia, as, as uh, the, the technical term is, is stated. But in time, Lisa's health improves. And John and Dodie attribute her improvement to uh, divine intervention. In other words, they interpret it as divine healing. And as Lisa now says, she was the first miracle at Lakewood Church. So they very much see 
her uh, health improvements as uh, a legitimation of the Pentecostal or neo-Pentecostal message. <clears throat> um, and, and as John begins to uh, travel around in the 1960s, as his name becomes more prominent in neo-Pentecostal circles, as he, his friendship improves with people like Oral Roberts and Kenneth Hagin, this story of his daughter's divine healing, as, as, as he puts it, becomes a kind of currency that, again, legitimates the message not only for him, but for, for Lakewood Church as a whole. And um, as I mentioned previously, the, the, the Osteens have five children. They end up, <clears throat> many of them, uh, attending Oral Roberts University, which is a reflection of John's friendship with, with the, the Roberts family. But then in the early 1980s, Dodie is diagnosed with liver cancer. And as both she and John and other members of the family narrate the story, uh, she is uh, uh, quite um, scared uh, with this diagnosis, as you can imagine. But by the 1980s, the aspect of, of the prosperity gospel known as positive confession becomes quite popular and paramount. And so what, what Dodie Osteen does is she lists a number of scriptures from the Bible and she articulates and verbalizes these uh, scriptures. And as uh, prosperity gospel folks say, she, she quote unquote claimed her healing. In time, Dodie's uh, cancer, she, she becomes cancer free. And just like the Osteen family narrated Lisa's health improvement as divine intervention, the Osteens narrate Dodie's cancer-free um, existence as evidence of a miraculous healing, as, again, another miracle at Lakewood Church. And so this further legitimates the message. I think we should also point out that Houston at this point is also the recipient of uh, a lot of uh, cancer research money. <clears throat> MD Anderson Cancer Center is, is on the rise, and other cancer-serving uh, hospitals in Houston are receiving research money. And so I, I, think, I think that's an important part of the story that doesn't always get, get mentioned. Yeah, so part of Houston's rise, for anyone who hasn't been there, is that Houston has this world-renowned medical center that develops, right? And so cancer research is a, is a big part of um, its sort of new intellectual economy. Uh, that is happening at the same time as uh, this leg of the journey for the Osteen family as well. And um, the way that this, it seems in, in hindsight that the spirit is moving is that it, it is working through this, uh, this problem, conundrum of uh, cancer and the evils of cancer, right? Uh, but it, it's working through as the family's becoming, learning about uh, God's divine favor, I suppose is the way of putting it. Um, and they can experience the Pentecost anew. That's right, that's right. And this not only happens with Lisa as a young infant, this not only happens with Dodie as uh, a middle-aged woman in the 1980s, something else happens. Uh, in, in the intervening years, and in, in 1990, uh, Lisa 
uh, opened a package that was sent to Lakewood Church and a pipe bomb exploded in her lap. And uh, she, she survives this, this, this bomb that, that exploded in the offices of Lakewood Church. And again, we see in the discourse of the church a return to this language of healing, this language of preservation, this language of uh, a, kind, a kind of divine and miraculous event. And so this, this, this serves to further legitimate this prosperity message of uh, not only economic advancement, but uh, uh, bodily health. Um, and, and, and this is really a, a really important point to make with respect to Lakewood Church and the family members of Lakewood who were or would become ministers of the church. Yes, Lakewood Church was and is a prosperity megachurch, but John Osteen Yes, he spoke about economic advancement. Yes, he spoke about material accumulation. Yes, he lived according to the fruit of his labor, as in living in the, in the Houston suburbs. But based on these uh, moments of what the Osteen family narrated as divine healing, this idea of bodily improvement was something that Lakewood Church emphasized in the past, and in many ways, it's what Lakewood Church still emphasizes. And who did the pipe bomb come from? Uh, well, yeah. uh, reports uh, indicated uh, that the FBI and the Houston Police Department did a thorough investigation, and uh, they were unable to determine uh, where that that came from. Uh, so, so uh, it, it's 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 unknown. Uh, what's interesting is um, there was there's speculation that a um, People who knew the family may have sent it, and, and who, who may have not had a favorable favorable opinion of the family. Some in some in other cases, it was narrated as as kind of politically motivated because in 1988, uh, Pat Robertson, who was running for the president, spoke at Lakewood, uh, and so there was thoughts that this may have something to do with uh, kind of retaliation for that. But but really, ultimately, uh, it's it's unknown. And, and it's interesting in a, a larger context about the Lakewood narrative, too, because as much as people are coming to this oasis of love, Lakewood Church is a place that people love to hate. You know, um, at this time, in the, the sort of chapter to come, people just hate Lakewood. <laughs> and uh, I, I think in some ways are waiting and watching, especially on television, for Lakewood to fail. Um, what happens when this wellspring of goodness dries up? Where's your God then? Um, where's your positive thinking and prosperity then? Um, and I wonder sort of how does that uh, play into the narrative, I think particularly of what happens when John dies, right? I mean, there's a moment when there's a changing of the guard from John to Joel, but I think there's got to be people in the middle who are waiting to see, well, what is this where you fold up? Is this where... Um, the story ends for your church, but it, of course it doesn't end that way. Yeah, I think there are several ways that we can think about uh, the, the, the broader critique of, of Lakewood Church. Uh, and I, I think one place to start is <clears throat> in this um, uh, skepticism about claims to divine healing. And, and, and I say this because I mean, even in the 1950s, 
or the, the, the mid 20th century, uh, people criticized and questioned the claims that Oral Roberts was making about uh, healing individuals from various ailments. And so I think part of this criticism came from the fact that it was eventually placed on television. Part of this came from the fact that people had no medical or scientific corroboration for these uh, supposed, supposed, uh, uh, supposed divine healing events. And Dodie Osteen did something fascinating. She published her autobiography, her memoir, called Healed of Cancer in 1986. So this is about five years after she becomes cancer-free. And so she tells her story. She links her recovery to positive confession. She links her recovery to divine intervention. But as an appendix to her book, she includes the testimony, the written testimony of uh, medical doctors. A man named Reginald Cherry, who is a Houston-based physician, a degreed physician, uh, but also a Pentecostal or Neo-Pentecostal Christian. So uh, we might say that Dr. Reginald Cherry believes in the Holy Spirit, but he also believes in science. And so as an appendix to Doty's book, she includes kind of written confirmed testimony from this doctor that yes, in fact, I saw Doty's charts, I looked at everything, and she is in fact cancer-free. Reginald Cherry then says, well, as a person of faith, I see this as nothing but miraculous. So in other words, Dodie included medical documentation of a certain kind so as to answer the critics. So, so I think this is really, really fascinating and an important and overlooked part of how proponents of the prosperity gospel are aware of those criticisms and how they seek to legitimate it. The other way to think about the broader criticism of Lakewood Church is that in the early 1980s, Joel Osteen, after attending Oral Roberts University for one year, moved back to Houston to start the television ministry at Lakewood Church. And so John, uh, Joel put his father on television. He put Lakewood on the, uh, the television map. Uh, and uh, n so this is about 1983. And we might remember or be aware of the storied televangelist scandals of the late 1980s. And here I have in mind uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, who were associated with a ministry called Praise the Lord. Uh, Jim Baker eventually is uh, arrested and he has embezzled money. He's uh, uh, done some major financial mismanagement and he spends some time in jail. Around, or actually before, uh, around the same time that, that the Jim and Tammy Faye Baker story surfaced, uh, Jimmy Swaggart is, um, in essence, caught uh, in uh, New Orleans with a prostitute by a ministerial uh, competitor. In other words, uh, pictures are taken of, of, of Jimmy Swaggart uh, going to and from a, a hotel. And this became quite scandalous. And in, in 1988, Jimmy Swaggart famously, uh, tearfully said, I'm sorry, right? I'm sorry for embarrassing my family. I'm sorry for sinning against my wife, etc." And so in this 
uh, politically charged moment of the late 1980s, uh, Jim Baker, Jimmy Swaggart, uh, their ministries are embroiled in controversy, right? sexual and financial controversy. There are kind of publicized and broadcast town hall meetings. Peter Jennings uh, does one of these town hall meetings where he asks the question, what is, in essence, what is televangelism? Is it just about the money? Is it just about the fame? Uh, what, is, what does this look like? Pat Robertson, as I mentioned earlier, is running for president, and although Pat Robertson is not a televangelist proper, he owns a prominent television network. And so he gets kind of corralled into the, this discussion, this broader discussion of televangelism. And I think the verdict on televangelism as a result of these uh, reports and others that would come out in the 1990s and, and thereafter really uh, delegitimated in the eyes of many the whole prospect of televangelism. In other words, these controversies led to a deep and profound skepticism for TV preachers. So prior to this, I guess we could say too that um, the, the prospect of putting the, the gospel in um, nice glossy print, putting it on television, putting it on the radio, um, these are things that lots of Christians are really interested in. I mean, there are critiques all along the way, but they're very interested in the possibility of spreading their message. A lot of the critiques that we're getting about uh, that, about televangelism, um, the sort of common touchstones of those critiques happen as a result of this period in the 80s. I mean, a lot of the, um, you know, the, the anything that you've seen on South Park or Saturday Night Live, all this stuff, this is what they have in mind, this whole era. Um, and this is when churches and others are starting to step away and say, okay, we're not touching this televangelism thing um, because there's such skepticism now attached to it. But the Osteens have something different in mind, I guess, with this. Yeah, and, and, and one of the interesting discoveries that I made is that as these scandals are taking place in the late 1980s, Joel Osteen in many ways literally has a front row seat as a religious broadcaster and television producer at Lakewood Church. Uh, Jimmy Swaggart and Jim Baker are both part of the broader neo-Pentecostal movement, and the Osteen family knows uh, these, these individuals. And so, uh, in essence, what we see is Joel Osteen, as a result of having a front row seat to these televangelist scandals, learns what makes for good religious programming and what doesn't make for good religious programming. And in his published books, Osteen talks all about the importance of facial expressions, the importance of the performance itself. And as a religious broadcaster, as a TV producer, he had, in essence, nearly two decades of production experience, television broadcast experience, before he becomes a minister. And to my knowledge, he is uh, the only uh, current prosperity gospel pastor who has really two decades in, in the television industry before he becomes a minister. And what we see, particularly as uh, Lakewood remains on television and uh, Joel continues to have an editorial hand or an editing hand in the production of his television broadcast, we see a number of things that make for Osteen's television presence uh, both positive, productive, lucrative, and quote-unquote successful. And part of that is... 
jo- uh, Joel Osteen does not ask for money because part of the skepticism of, tel- of the televangelist enterprise itself is right. these preachers are greedy, they're only interested in making a buck and this is why they, they do what they do. Osteen never asks for money and I think that's very intentional. Number two, um, Osteen, e- even though Lakewood is a prosperity gospel, charismatic Pentecostal megachurch that believes in this idea of divine healing, there you will never see anybody slain in the spirit on Lakewood's broadcast. Basically, this is when, and, 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 and Benny Hinn on Trinity Broadcasting Network made this pop, popular, and, and other ministers as well, where the minister touches somebody's forehead and in this exhibition of what is uh, assumed to be spiritual power, people fall down, people fall out. So you will never see that on uh, a Lakewood broadcast because many people are skeptical of that, that, right, that it's, it's, it's a performance, uh, only interested in, in, in making money. And the other part of that broader puzzle is that um, you will see Joel Osteen smiling a whole lot. And he's well known as the smiling preacher. This was a phrase that was coined in 2005 by a Washington Post journalist named Lois Romano. Um, But I think there's something to that because in his writings, Joel Osteen talks about the importance of what a smile communicates on television. And not only is Osteen's broadcast excellently produced from a cinematic perspective, uh, he takes the smile quite seriously. And I think that has uh, been an important piece to that. And finally, I think we see Osteen's televangelism as connected to this digital age. Because if you think about it, Joel Osteen's first book came out in 2004. He, be- he became Lakewood's minister in 1999. Between the early 2000s and uh, 2014, when Joel Osteen started a serious XM radio station, that, that intervening decade or, or a dozen years marked the rise of social media. It marked the rise of what we now call the Internet age. And as, so, so in other words, Joel Osteen's public career tracked with the rise of social media tracked with the birth of YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and all of these digital platforms and as a television producer, as somebody who was fluent in the language of technology, Osteen in some ways was in the right place at the right time. And so he was able to capitalize literally and figuratively on this digital technology and so he was able to put his face and message on these multiple media modalities. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, there's a lot of conversation education, right, about digital natives, These this generation of students where after a certain point they just seem to be around uh, in a world where there's the internet, where they're around multiple screens, where they're around social media. But um, people who've done a lot of work in this area have been quick to note, including the authors, uh, behind that original phrase of digital natives, that there's this period in time in which you have people who grow up alongside of and with these technologies. And so some of the purveyors of these great technologies, whether they're blog platforms, whether they're um, social networks like Facebook, whether they're um, you know uh, new communicative forms for institutions, these people grew up also with fluency in the technologies that came before. And so they're able to use, add, contribute, hack, 
um, and further the reach of information because they know how to use these tools and read the, um, the publics that they want to communicate with. And Joel Osteen is that figure. But how do we get from Joel Osteen, the smiling preacher, you know, who's in front of the camera, how do we get there from the Joel Osteen who was behind the camera and in the studio? What was it that made him make that leg of the journey to um, being the face that we know so well from books and television and internet and elsewhere? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think one of the ways to think about this is how Joel Osteen has narrated his own emergence as Lakewood's minister. So if you read his books, if you kind of scan the interviews that are online, he says that right before his father passed away, right as his father was in the hospital uh, with kidney failure and, and heart problems, that he felt this uh, divine prompting. It's a very Pentecostal thing for Joel Osteen to say, in fact. Uh, he felt this divine prompting, and he felt, quote-unquote, led to become Lakewood's minister uh, upon his, his father's uh, death, or after his father died. In, in, in 1999 and then says you know he sort of walked into his father's ministry and he developed confidence and so on and so forth uh, I think that is a uh, I mean I I think that is true insofar as that is what Osteen has explained to uh, the public when when we look at the documentary evidence it seems to me that that he is uh, he is the most likely candidate to take over for his father. And I say this for a number of reasons. Number one, as I mentioned previously, Osteen put Lakewood on the television map. Uh, Joel Osteen made Lakewood portable. In other words, the televangelist ministry broadcast Lakewood outside of Houston. So Osteen had a, had a literal hand in that. So he, he commanded Lakewood's growth which I think is a really important point. Secondly, when you look at the uh, Houston newspapers and other uh, documentary evidence, Joel Osteen is literally at his father's side in a whole range of photographs and reports. So he, he understands the internal mechanics of church politics. He is crafting Lakewood's presence outside of Houston. So he, he, he's in command, he, he's in the command center of a lot. Yeah, sit at the right hand, as it were. Right? <laughs> that's right, that's right. And um, not only that, but uh, he is, he edits his father's sermons, uh, both for literal uh, cassette tape production, VHS tape production, and television production. When he edits his father's sermons, he's, he listen, he's listening to each sermon five and six and seven times. That is his theological education. That is his apprenticeship, if you will. And so when his father passes away, uh, Joel Osteen has been listening to his father's sermons multiple times for nearly 20 years. He is fluent in the prosperity gospel. He is fluent in the Pentecostal message. He, he has imbibed aspects of, of uh, the biblical narrative, and so he can, he's, he can easily talk about them. So even though he says, I had this divine prompting to become, a, to become Lakewood's minister upon my father's death, in many ways he is the most likely candidate. And, and I also uh, interviewed in my research a scholar of 
American religious history, uh, Ed Harrell, who has written biographies of Oral Roberts and Pat Robertson. He talked about the early uh, neo-Pentecostal movement in the 1970s with several uh, publications. He had known John Osteen for a while and interviewed Osteen in the, in the mid-1990s in India, where John used to do preaching events. And he, the conversation eventually in the mid-90s between Ed Harrell and John Osteen circled around to Lakewood's future and uh, plans for succession. And according to uh, Harrell, John indicated that Joel was a possible kind of inheritor of the Lakewood throne, as it were. Uh, and so I was able to compile various bits of documentary uh, evidence and, and, and kind of oral history evidence. Uh, and, and so I think, I think jo jo uh, Joel Osteen was well-placed to take over Lakewood Church. Uh, now, I think at the same time, I think it took Joel Osteen four or five years to settle on the specifics of his message. That is to say, what his main message was going to be about, which was in some ways similar to but different from his, his father. And one way we may know Joel Osteen's message best is by its impact on America, right? You sort of add that um, in, your, in the, the subtitle to your book that it's, it's Joel Osteen, Lakewood Church, and American Christianity. What does Osteen's message do to America, and what does that tell us about Joel? I think Joel Osteen's message of positive thinking, positive confession, verbalizing one's future into existence. I think his message of second chances. I think his articulation of this message in broad spiritual terms, which is a difference from his early career. I think the move that Osteen has made to neutralize distinctly Christian discourse and talk about a message of self-improvement, talk about a message of positive thinking, talk about a message of, of second chances, I think this resonates in a <clears throat> United States that is in a world that is in turmoil, that's deeply divided, that has both beauty and terror within it at the, at the same time. And I think ultimately Osteen Osteen's rhetoric offers a predictable message in unpredictable times, a message of stability in politically and economically unstable times. And I don't know that this is anything new in the broad corridors of American history. One thinks of Norman Vincent Peale, a minister from, upstate, or from New York in the mid-20th century who in 1952 published a book called The Power of Positive Thinking. And just as Norman Vincent Peale offered a message of positive thinking during the early Cold War years of nuclear threat, just as Norman Vincent Peale offered a predictable message in unstable times, Osteen in the early 21st century has uh, offered a predictable message in unstable times. And so I think that explains one reason why he has wide purchase. I think, as I mentioned previously, his... Uh, digital dexterity as a television producer, as a blogger, somebody on Twitter, he's able, he, he, was, he has been able to capture this digital moment and uh, produce his, his message in, in multiple formats in that uh, particular way. 
And finally, I think the fact that there are so many critics of Osteen, particularly the new Calvinist uh, movement um, today, uh, I think the fact that he has so many critics also inversely speaks to his, his popularity as well. Well, Philip Luke Sinatera, thank you so much. You've given us a lot to think about, and we look forward to having you again in the future. Thanks, Richard. I really appreciate you inviting me. That was Philip Luke Sinatera. He's the author of Salvation with a Smile, Joel Osteen, Lakewood Church, and American Christianity, published by New York University Press. I'm your host, Richard Newton. On behalf of both of us and my production assistant, Maya Ponsuwan, thanks for being here. Until next time. Broadcast Seeding is an outgrowth of the blog SowingTheSeed.org. If you dig what you've heard, spread the word. We're on both Twitter and Instagram at SeedPods. Our theme music comes from Second Serve, a Creative Commons track by Ergo Fizmiz. Thanks for listening.